Family's hard, isn't it? It's, it's beautiful. I could say too much there. I won't. If you would now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 9, we're picking up there. We looked at the first 10 verses last week. This morning we're looking at verses 11 through 22. Let me go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more... With the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. May it be sweet to us this morning. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you'd allow for your word to penetrate our hearts and minds this morning, to help us know the seriousness of sin, what it cost, and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, use me, be pleased to use me this morning, to move me out of the way, to communicate that word effectively to your people this morning, for your glory, for our good, For the good of your church, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The word blood is used 10 times in those 12 verses we just read. And the message is clear. We require salvation, and our salvation requires blood. Why do we require salvation? Well, because we rightly deserve the wrath of God due for sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us, right? And in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us, death entered the world through one man's sin and spread to all men because all sinned. So we need to be saved. That curse of death has to be removed 
from us. We need to be rescued from the wrath and curse of God. That's what we need saving from. We require salvation. So why does salvation require blood? Without the shedding of blood, verse 22, there is no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins, no salvation from the wrath of God due for sin. So that's the main idea this morning. We require salvation, and that salvation requires blood. And this is pretty elementary stuff, right? I mean, we all know this as Christians. But if we've been paying attention, we know that has always been the case, hasn't it? That's not something new in the New Covenant that the author's talking to his audience about. It's always required blood, even in the Old Covenant. But what the author's been saying and trying to convince them of is some things have changed. Not the blood requirement. Blood is still required. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But in this new and better covenant, we have better blood. This is critical for them to understand. Because remember, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better, right? Haven't we been talking about that? Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels that you're so fascinated with. He's better than, than Aaron, the high priest. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He offers a better rest, a better sacrifice. He's a better priest. He offers better blood. He's leveraging everything they know about the sacrificial system and the bloody mess that sin requires, and he points to Christ and says, one sacrifice, one blood, one salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and there's only been one blood ever spilled that has the power to do it. Only the blood of Christ actually atones for sin. Without it, there can be no forgiveness. There can be no salvation. You know, when I first became a Christian, I love telling these stories because I was just a dummy when I, when I was a baby Christian, right? You know, we we kind of start out that way. Just we have, to, we have to learn, and that's why I'd encourage all of you, you know, the young Christians in our midst as we have uh, people come to know the Lord around us, being patient with them, right? Showing them grace, and they're counting on you to, to, to bring them along and to help them see these things. But I remember when I first became a Christian, I found it really jarring how much talk there was of blood. So much blood talk, precious blood, right? Washed in blood, drink my blood. It's a bloody religion we have, isn't it? And if you're new to Christianity, I don't blame you for being surprised by that. I was. You know, we'd be singing nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I'd be like, all right. You know, I can, I can get into that. Then I found out there's a fountain filled with blood. I'm like, that seems excessive. That's a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. And you get thinking, man, you know, what, what's going on with that? Well, here's the point. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And the more you come to appreciate your salvation, the more you understand the depravity of man the more you understand your condition, your fallen condition, and what your sin deserves, 
the more sweet that forgiveness of sins becomes, the more precious that blood becomes to you. What symbolizes death means life for you. What symbolizes death means life for you. And the message here is better blood, a new and better covenant in that better blood. But, you know, why do we need the blood? Let, just pull away for a second. Let's not assume too much at all. Let's just back away from it and ponder on that. Why blood? Why couldn't God do it some other way? Couldn't he do that? If he's all-powerful, couldn't he have done it some other way? Couldn't God just say, okay, uh, just here's the deal. You apologize, and I'll forgive you. Why did it take a death? Why did it take blood? We'll get in, into some of that this morning. We require salvation, and our salvation requires blood. So let's look at two points the author makes. A will requires a death, and sin requires blood. So first, a will requires a death. If there's one thing we all know about a will, it's that it doesn't work until the person who made it dies. Right? That's, just, that's just how wills work. And that's what the author says in verse 16, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Right? So what the will offers stays in the possession of the person who made it until they die. It's their death that releases the, the, the benefits of that will to another person, whoever it was willed to. Now here's what's fun. The Greek word for will and the Greek word for covenant, same word. So this is a perfect illustration that the author gives them here. Let's, let's read these verses again in, in verses 16 and 17. Let's just replace that word will with the word covenant so we can kind of get at this double meaning he's sneaking in there, okay? For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a covenant takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. What's he saying? What's he using this illustration in comparison to get them to understand? It's really simple and something we all need to understand. Your life is wrapped up in the death of Christ. All of those promises all of that inheritance, all of that blessing, all of that new covenant promise can only be re realized and can only be had through the death of Christ. There's an inheritance for the people of God, and there's always been. There's always been an inheritance promised to them. But you can't have any of it until the person who made it, who made that will, God, Jesus, dies. Death is the pathway to inheritance. And since Jesus has died, all of that inheritance that was willed to you now belongs to you by faith in him. And ultimately, what they're looking forward to, right, these people he's speaking to, the grand prize that was lost in the garden is God's presence 
God present with us. It's God himself. So that inheritance that Jesus willed to us and died to an act is reconciliation with God. That's huge. And here's what it means. We, we confessed this a while ago. A new resurrected body that will inhabit a new and restored earth. We invite you to, to, to go there in your minds on occasion, right? Because I think a lot of times we, we just think, we think of life uh, as, as sort of just however long we live here and there's sort of this roadblock at the end called death and we don't really ponder much of what happens on the other side. We're only thinking of what happens between now and that, that death here. But you realize you're going to live a whole lot longer on the other side of that death, don't you? It will have a resurrected body like he has now and live in a, in a glorified earth with him, with us. Do we have peace and reconciliation with God now? Sure we do, absolutely, yes, and amen. Is it glorious? Yes. Is it a done deal? Is it final? Yes, absolutely. Is it fully realized by us in the present no, but it will be. The God who made us and everything else has redeemed us, and that redemption continues until the time of his return, when the dead are raised and those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb will inhabit a new earth inhabited by God himself. Consider what John says in Revelation 21, describing the new heavens and the new earth. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Through the death of Christ, we've not only inherited eternal life, but we've inherited the earth with him in it. God with us. Forever. When my dad dies, I'll get his Martin guitar. I don't know if he has that written down anywhere, but everybody knows it. I don't know if you know anything about guitars, but two of the nicest acoustic guitars you can have are a Martin and a Taylor. There's other really nice guitars out there, but those are two, those are two of the nicest ones you can have. And I know one day, my dad has a Martin, I know one day it'll be mine. That's why I got a tailor. So when he dies, I'll have two of the nicest guitars out there. But my dad has to die for me to get it. And when he's gone, that'll pale in comparison to having my dad. I'll get the gift but I'll have lost the giver. The opposite is true with Jesus. His death gets me the inheritance, it gets me the gift, but it gets me something better. I get the giver. That's what Jesus' death gets you. God has made promises to his people. He's promised himself to his people. And since he has offered himself up for his people, through the death of Christ, we have everything he has promised, including 
himself. So that's point number one. A will requires death. Our life is wrapped up in the death of Christ. The new covenant and all it has promised has been enacted because our Savior died. Now next point, and the longer one. Sin requires blood. We see in verse 11 the high priest language again. Haven't we been seeing a lot of that? The author's been on that for a while now. And he says Jesus is the high priest of the good things that have come. Again, his sacrifice, his death, has inaugurated this new and better covenant, and all of the promises will do his people in that covenant have now kicked in at his death. And he goes back to something he emphasized earlier about Christ offering himself as a better sacrifice in a better location. You remember talking about this? He says here again, the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands. So not an earthly tent. That's not where he offered the better sacrifice as a better high priest. Not a copy and a shadow of the holy places, the actual holy places, the real deal. And not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, verse 12, but by the means of his own blood. Thus, it says, securing an eternal redemption. And then he says next in verses 13 and 14, if the blood of goats and bulls was for the purification of the flesh, how much more... Will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's big. We talked about that last week. That was purifying the conscience. The old arrangement, he said back in verses 9 and 10, gifts and sacrifices were made that couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Better blood does. That's the point. And since it does, we're past all that. We, we can actually serve the living God. His blood has atoned for our sin, and all the other blood didn't. It reminded them of their sin, that's for sure. Reminded them of their severed relationship with God. Reminded them of their need of a better blood that actually atones for sin. But now that blood has already been shed. A death has occurred, verse 15, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, like it says there. Now, here's where we get into some more of the blood stuff, that sin requires blood. He says in verse 18, even that covenant wasn't inaugurated without blood. It's always been about the blood. Blood sprinkled here and there and wiped on this thing and splattered on that. Indeed, he says there at the beginning of verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Worship was a bloodbath. I don't know if you thought about that before, because we can read it black and white on the page. But sometimes we can't imagine the gruesome scene that it is. This would have been a horrific scene. It wasn't clean and pretty. It, it, it didn't smell nice. It smelled like death. The smell of death was in the air on the Day of Atonement. And the guy leading the service wasn't looking so dapper. He's up to his ankles in blood. Blood on his clothes, blood on his 
hands, probably splattered on his face. And here's why I'm setting the stage this way, okay, and painting that graphic picture in your minds. We have to realize our religion has always been a bloody religion. Imagine the messiness. Imagine the gore and the horror of it. And the message is this, behold the effects of sin. Don't look away. Don't you dare look away. Behold the effects of sin. That's what it costs. And the same is true for us now in the new covenant. Just look at the cross. Behold the effects of sin. But the cross speaks a better word, and that's what he wants them to see. It doesn't just say behold the effects of sin. It says behold the love of God. It says, God has not abandoned you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I can't help but think of that line in the hymn we sang just a little bit ago. How great the Father's love for us. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has bought me life. I know that it is finished. That gruesome, bloody scene for the forgiveness of my sins. The end of verse 22 is really the linchpin of the whole message. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, all the blood stuff, all this talk about blood, it might make us squirm, and that's okay. It's okay if it does. It should. We should have the, the same view of sin that God does. It's horrific. It deserves death. I've said before, and from what I've heard from many of you, it's resonated with you, so I'll keep saying it, that sins are not oopsie-daisies. God doesn't look at sins as mistakes or little peccadilloes made by imperfect people. He looks at sins as corrupt and rebellious acts committed by depraved and wicked people. The smallest of which he will rightly punish in hell for all of eternity. And the message of the gospel is sin requires blood. It can be required from you. And you'll never have enough to get off the hook. It's not enough blood in your veins. An eternity of punishment won't make up for what you've done. Or you can trust in the one whose blood was enough. Better blood, accepted by God for the forgiveness of sins. The point is it requires blood either way, doesn't it? I mean, we're seeing that hopefully, right? And that's what the author wants them to see. God didn't change his mind about the whole blood thing. God didn't have a change of heart or change his attitude toward sin from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You know, he didn't go to therapy and work out his anger issues and come back and say, you know, I think I may have been overreacting. 
you know, I want you to know how precious you are to me, and, and I don't want to do anything to jeopardize this relationship. I just love you so much. I'm willing to change my ways. Let's make up. You hear anyone presenting the gospel that way, you run far and fast. That's, that's a doctrine of demons. Sin requires blood. No blood, no forgiveness. No wrath of God due for sin, nothing to be saved from. I know people tend to think God is unfair to judge sin so severely, and we have the tendency to want to round off those edges for people, don't we? People that we're reaching out to. There's a temptation there, I know, where you want to kind of soften the blow a little bit, round off those sharp corners, but that's a mistake. Don't sanitize our bloody religion, people. Don't wipe the blood off the cross. It is worthless without it. The reality is people think all this blood stuff and God's judgment is so severe because they don't think sin is so severe. They just don't. That's the problem. We don't think it's that big of a deal. Truth is, sin's a much bigger deal than we think it is. It literally broke the world, didn't it? It's literally why people you have known and loved have died. It's literally why you will die one day. It's literally why there's sickness and disease and, and oppression and war and injustice. All those things, all these things, all of us could easily put on a list together and agree that those are things that prevent human flourishing. Sin did all of that. Rebellion against the rightful king of the universe is what did all of that. Sin brought ruin through our rebellion, and what God brought was reconciliation through a redeemer. What he could have done is just torched the earth, and he would have been right to do it. We have to realize that, don't we? Could have just napalmed the planet. The question is never, why does God save some of us. The question is always, why does he save any of us at all? And the answer is grace. But as my brother Foster, who's not here this morning, often says, grace has blood on it. In order for us to receive that grace and that reconciliation through our Redeemer, a death must occur. The penalty for our sin is death. Blood is the payment due for sin. So here it is again. God either punishes our sin in us or punishes our sin in Jesus. Not one sin goes unpunished. And I'm kind of going... going taking a little detour here for a second, but that's important to remember as we think about justice, right? Don't we have a lot of people up in a whirlwind in our culture today about justice and trying to define justice and wanting to see that justice is served? Where's the justice for the criminal that got off? Man and I watched a documentary recently where 
you, you saw somebody get away, not with murder, but might as well have been. God views it the same way. But get away with something, and it's, it's just not just. There's no justice. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Because we have a just God who sees all, and not one sin will go unpunished. What may escape man's eye, what may escape his justice, will not go unpunished because we serve a just and righteous and holy God who is judge over all. Sin is a big deal. It requires blood. God's holiness is a bigger deal than most care to imagine. Where we have a small view of sin, we tend to have a small view of God's holiness. And when we have a small view of our sin and God's holiness, we said this last week, didn't we? We have a small, puny little view of the cross. A big view, a weighty view of sin. A big, heavy, weighty view of God's holiness. Big view of the cross. That's where we live. Here's the danger. Small view of sin, small view of God's holiness, small view of the cross and Christ's work of redemption. That's a recipe for rejection of our only means of reconciliation. That's a recipe for apostasy, which we've talked a lot about so far, haven't we? The whole book of Hebrews is sprinkled pretty heavily with these warnings of apostasy. That's where it starts. Small view of sin. Small, light view of God's holiness. Very little awareness of what it took, what it costs to forgive sins. Requires blood. Jesus' blood is the only blood that can save. His blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. And the reason is because, as we've said already, his blood was, first of all, offered in a better location. Right? We've been saying that. And the true holy holies in, in the heavenly places. And the true and greater tent, it says there in verse 11. The one, the earthly tent was only the shadow of. He applied his better blood in a better location, in the very presence of God. And so the earthly priests, they, they sprinkled blood in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. They, they, they uh, brought forth and applied this blood in the tabernacle and then in the temple where God said his presence would be. But again, it was only a shadow. Are you, getting, are you getting this idea as we've talked about this, this idea of the shadows and figures of these heavenly realities that we've been talking about? It, it, it's been coming up a lot. I mean, you, grasping that, it's important that we get it. And I don't just mean that we get it from the top down, but from the bottom up. Not just viewing the shadow and understanding, oh, that represents something up here, but understanding what this represents from the bottom up. We can grasp that the temple and the Ark of the Covenant were just copies and shadows of the heavenly realities that didn't do the heavenly realities justice, really, but you, have you imagined how splendid, splendid and glorious those heavenly realities really are? Let me put it to you this way. Consider this. Remember the cherubim? 
on the top of, top, top of the Ark of the Covenant, protecting the, the mercy seat, made of gold, right? They're not made of gold in heaven. They're real in heaven. And Jesus offered his blood there in their presence. His atoning blood was accepted by God the Father in the, in the real place. His blood was actually acceptable because he's human, because he's sinless. That's why it's better than calves and goats. Had to be human blood to atone for human sin. And we talked about that in previous sermons. It had to have the blood of an innocent man, the, the blood of bulls and goats being innocent, even though it was innocent blood. It wasn't, it wasn't enough to atone for man's sin. We needed the blood of an innocent man. That's an aspect of our redemption what our, what our redemption requires, it's sometimes understated, I think. You know, yes, we are saved by his death, but we needed his sinless life. We had to have his sinless life. He obeyed the Father perfectly on our behalf. That's the only way his blood could atone for our sin. He couldn't be born of Adam's seed, and so he wasn't. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Born of the Virgin Mary. Does that sound familiar? You see why we confess these things in the Apostles' Creed? Why it's important that we remind ourselves regularly, routinely, about these core essential truths of the Christian faith? There are plenty of people, statistically speaking, who say that they are Christians who disagree with these things. People who say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really believe he was born of a virgin and all that stuff. Well, you're not a Christian! Stop! A blood of infinite worth was required to atone for man's sin. And only Jesus had it. Because he didn't just take on a human nature. He did it without taking on a sinful nature. He had to be born of a virgin. He's God in the flesh. That's what our sin required. And here's the deal. No one and nothing else can meet that requirement. No one born of Adam. And so he wasn't. Nothing but the blood of Jesus could atone. And his blood doesn't just purify the flesh, but our consciences. You see that contrast in these verses. Purifies the conscience. Why? So that we can serve the living God. That we're freed from those dead works but made alive in Christ to serve the living God. The ritual cleansing that made someone ceremonially clean only cleansed the outside. Jesus' blood cleanses from the inside out, which means we can, with a clean conscience, serve the living God. We can obey him faithfully. Because of this cleansing of our conscience, cleansing us from the inside out, something only the blood of Christ can do for us, our obedience is something different. It's something new. It's, it's, it's taken on a new catalyst. It, it stems from our affections. Love now motivates us to obedience. When we see the cross, we not only see the seriousness of, of our sin and the price of our sin, we see the love of God 
And so, and so when we, you think about how that fresh perspective helps us view obeying God differently. We've said a lot already as we keep comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New. It's not like law-keeping was an Old Testament thing, and we don't have to worry about that anymore as Christians. That's crazy talk. That's cuckoo bananas. Don't, don't believe that. Don't go down that road. The law is still the law. It's still holy. It's still good. And God expects us to keep it. The law has not changed. But our relationship to the law has definitely changed. Because God's caused a change in us. He has given us new hearts. He has freed us from sin and bondage to sin, slavery to sin. So we don't have to look at the law and say, well, I'm not allowed to do that. We can say, why, why would I ever want to do that? Why would I want to sin against my father who has loved me so much and paid such a high cost for me. Why would I want to do something that I know would not please my Father? What motivates our obedience as Christians who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb isn't a fear of our Father being angry with us, but a deep sense of love for Him and a distaste for anything that would not please Him. That's different. It's not a one-to-one comparison But think about your relationship to your children, parents. Amanda and I are not yet in the teen years, but I think that's where this is most clearly seen. Your child should be given a much longer leash in their teen years because you've invested so heavily in their small years. You're not supposed to let them get away with murder when they're five and then put all the brakes on when they're 15. You've taught them from their youth what is expected of them, what the standard is. And hopefully what you've taught them is the beauty of that standard. It's not just a measuring stick. It's a safeguard. It's a life jacket. It's how to live a life of peace and confidence and integrity. And so when they finally have more freedom than they've ever had before. Their their choices aren't governed by external restrictions, but by internal affections. Their love of you as their parents and their love of righteousness. The choice is easy because they're not going against the grain of their desires. See, their desires are already spoken for. That's us, y'all. That's what Jesus' blood does in the life of a Christian. We're given a stronger desire for obedience because of our love for God and his righteous standard. We recognize our best life doesn't exist outside of the boundaries that he has set. All the sweetness, all the goodness, all the beauty is within those boundaries that he's set for us. We don't have to go hop the fence and explore with us on the other side. We can trust him that the best place is the place closest to him. We love his righteous standard. It's no longer, the law is no longer a weight on us that condemns us, no longer merely a measuring stick that reminds us that we don't measure up, 
but it's a safety blanket and a comfort to us. It's a comfort and aid to us. And we know that by keeping his law, we're not earning our righteousness. But because Christ is our righteousness, we have a clean conscience before God, and we like it that way. Wrapping all this up here, when we think about this blood stuff, when we think about our salvation and what it required, where do we fit in? Where's the part where we finally get it right? It's not there. We don't see a to-do list. We don't see a method or a set of rituals that we have to perform in order to stay right with God, to get right and stay right with God. What we do see is a will. And we don't have to get straight A's to stay on it. We don't have to have straight A's on our report card to get the benefits of that will. What has to happen is the one who made it has to die, and he already has. So everything in that will is ours by faith in him. We see a will and we see blood. Lots of it, don't we? A lot of blood. We see a bloody religion we are not to be ashamed of. Our sin requires blood to be shed. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the only thing we contribute to our salvation, as Jonathan Edwards famously observed, is the sin that made our salvation necessary in the first place. That's what we bring to the table. God brings redemption through the blood of his son. It is perfect and acceptable in his sight And because it is, so are we. We are acceptable in his sight. Blessed be our bloody religion. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, when we look at a passage like this, we're reminded of the cost of our redemption. Lord, we thank you for those reminders. Reminders of your grace and your mercy toward us. God, I pray that we all would leave here this morning knowing the blood of your Son speaks a better word than punishment for sin. It tells us of your love and your commitment to your people. I pray that knowledge and that awareness would be embedded deep in our hearts and minds as we seek to live lives that honor you this week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.